We're in our study here this morning on a life of faith, and we're looking at Genesis chapter 27, Genesis 28. We're going to be in this probably a couple, at least a couple Sundays, uh, Lord willing. And we're looking at the life of the son of Abraham, Isaac, and we're moving along in that study, and we've been journeying along with, with these men of faith and their families, and we come to this chapter, or two chapters really, and what you see um, is both a, an amazing thing in that God is able to take the broken pieces of our families and lives and everything else and still put them back together and still make something absolutely wonderful and marvelous out of them, including the times we don't trust God and the times we don't, um, uh, we, we don't put our faith in the right steps and orders and things like that as we move forward. And this part of Genesis, I always found it kind of sad. Uh, if you just only had these chapters, it would be sad because you wouldn't have the rest of the story, how God would use it. But sometimes people don't always finish well. And Isaac was sort of that kind of a man. He went through all these years and there were times in his life, as we've already looked at, where he trusted the Lord. There were times where he failed and he sinned. And the Bible just reveals men and women as just that, men and women who are born in Adam's race. We are all sinners in need of redemption, need of salvation through the Lord. And we do see that was the direction of Isaac's life. And he is uh, numbered really in the, the whole hall of faith in that he did trust the Lord. Yet nearing the end of his life, he made some, well, some bad decisions. And again, God would take those bad decisions and still bring something absolutely wonderful out of it. And so we're going to pick it up this morning. We're going to read down through Genesis 27, uh, down to verses 1, or down to verse 4, and then we'll comment on those and continue on this morning. Genesis chapter 27, now in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau his older son and said to him, my son, and he answered him, Here I am. And then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And make me savory food, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Lord, we come before you. First of all, thanking you for who you are. Thanking you, you're the one that holds our, our very breath in our lungs. Uh, you allow our hearts to beat at this very moment. And Lord, life and death is in your hands. And Lord, for the believer, we, we know that death is but a portal into the very presence of God. And really a wonderful uh, part of that everlasting life that you offer even now. And so, Lord, we would pray today that you would help each and every one of us to, to finish well and to be, have our eyes set on that prize of our great and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, help us learn from your scriptures today and learn in obedience to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to this, um, this section of scripture, and as it's titled, Broken Pieces, someone said that, 
life is really a masterpiece. Even, you know, uh, the life that is breathed into all of us, right, that are sitting in this room today. I hope you're alive anyways. Uh, if you're not, somebody check their pulse, please. But, but in reality, life is also a, a master full of pieces, isn't it, sometimes? And there's lots of parts of life that are difficult. They're hard. And there's things that we can't answer easily. And yet faith, and faith in particular in God and Christ, comes in and provides that hope beyond the answers we might seek now, even. And we find Isaac was kind of this character that it's really, as we read in those first four verses of this chapter, uh, he's in the end of his life. He doesn't know the exact day that he's going to die, but his eyes are now dim, and the time is coming, and we see who Isaac is at that moment in his life. And Actually, it's not a really a pretty moment in his life in that he isn't desiring to really serve the Lord. He's really more concerned about his next meal. And it's interesting how that goes with this man. And yet God would use this in his life. You know, sometimes we don't obviously have a cho- we don't have choices in the day that we're going to die. All right. In in that aspect of it um, as old age approaches or whatever else. Um, but the Lord knows those days, and I think well, so long as we have breath in our lungs and that heart is beating in our chest, we ought to be serving him. And that invitation was there to Isaac. It was there preceding him to Abraham, his father, going all the way back to the very Garden of Eden when Adam could walk with God in the cool of the day and they could commune together and talk. And God still offers that same relationship that he wants you and me to have with him. And I'm glad for that. Sometimes the end of a life really sums up most of that life and how it was lived. Not always. Sometimes people change at the end of their life. I've seen people who were in their 80s who who come to know the Lord. I remember years ago in in Limestone, Maine, I showed up for a church meeting. And I, I shared this years ago probably here, but I showed up for a church meeting. And um, Charlie Campbell was the pastor over there and he's just gone to be with the lord here recently but i showed up and it was the wrong night he had invited me for the wrong night and it wasn't a church meeting it was visitation so i decided i'd go out with them on visitation and i went with another brother there from that church and we went to the very first home we went to it was an elderly man there in his 80s and his wife had died a couple years before that and he himself knew his days were short and he said right off the bat, he said, I've been waiting for you to come. Wow. I don't usually get that kind of, uh, you know, invitation into somebody's house like they were waiting. And he wanted to know how to be saved and how to go to heaven. His wife knew how, but he didn't know how. And, and he really was battling with that in his last days. And I remember sitting there for about 20, 25 minutes explaining the gospel to the man. And he was marvelously saved that night. And uh, we prayed together right around that table. He prayed a prayer. I didn't tell him what to pray. And he just prayed a prayer of faith. Wonderful experience. Uh, But I've also been with people who right up to the very end of their life, sometimes in their old age, sometimes in their younger days, they they resist the Lord. They they turn against him or they get bitter and, and hard. And they don't always make those good decisions. Sometimes that happens. Death is the great leveler. It reminds us that our day is coming. Uh, if you're still alive here, and that we ought to be ready for those things. And uh, Genesis chapter 27 really speaks about how we ought to live in those things. Just this week, I was reading a book 
uh, by Adam Makos, another book, I think I mentioned Devotion there a couple weeks ago, but another one that he wrote called Spearhead. It is um, the history of the 3rd Armored Division uh, as they stretched across Europe in World War II, and a little bit after that as far as uh, the, the ca- I shouldn't say the, the characters that are found in that book, uh, real-life people that actually lived, and these people um, did some amazing things, and I think we all benefit from some of their sacrifice, along with so many others that served in that generation. And I had just finished that book last night, and I wondered, because the main character in that is a man uh, named Clarence Smoyer, who grew up in Pennsylvania and ended up uh, going into the 3rd Armored Division during the um, latter part of World War II, ended up as a loader on a, a Sherman tank, and the crews of Sherman tanks were short-lived. Most of them, uh, not most, but many died. I think it was uh, around somewhere around 40 or 50 percent of Sherman tank crews died during the war because it was just a big tinderbox and very lightly armored, and it was greatly outgunned by uh, the Germans. And Clarence survived through that part early on in the uh, really the battles that took place throughout. France and then into Belgium and uh, going further into Germany, they came to the stronghold of Cologne, the city in Germany that was the, the, really the, the Nazi stronghold. And as they came to that, they expected a great battle that would ensue. Um, Clarence, by this point, had been moved up to being a gunner in actually um, a Pershing tank, a, a new tank that had not been even deployed on the battlefield very long, and his unit only had one of them, and he was in it. And they ended up being the literally the spearhead, and that's the also the motto of the Third Armored Division. They would roll into uh, Cologne, and there they would battle some of the hardest and uh, tank battles of the war in you know close quarters, right in a city. And it's a great story. I won't say much more about that other than it's just you're sitting there with these guys and the heartache that they faced and, and, and the joys they experienced and their life and all that they were and what they became. Is some of them just very young men at the time. And Clarence, I, I, I wondered if he was still alive and I happened to look him up last night and I found out he died on Friday. Died just on Friday in Allentown, Pennsylvania. His funeral hasn't even been set yet. There's a picture of him from, I believe it was 2017, when uh, he accompanied the author, uh, Adam Makos, to Germany. And there, a journalist in Cologne had looked up um, a German tanker who had survived the war uh, named Gustav Schaefer. And Gustav Schaefer was in the tank that Clarence Smoyer shot and disabled and he was a very interesting story with that outgunned entirely and Clarence Smoyer actually shot a building that was the tank the German tank was up against and destroyed the rubble and in the uh, the bricks and those came down and disabled the German tank and he saved all kinds of U.S. soldiers in the process of that because they were not going to be able to take out that tank and that crew was able most of them able to escape and years later um, after battling some of the demons of PTSD, all the things that he dealt with for almost 70 years, Clarence was able to go back to Germany and he met the gunner on the other tank and they became close friends. 
and really, really neat. Well, Gustav uh, died, um, he died just a few years ago, and then Clarence died just on Friday. And tremendous men, uh, they, details a little bit of their history, their life, their life after the war, and which, where each one went, and those kind of things. And one of the things I learned about Clarence Smoyer is that nearing the end of his life, when he still had some strength, he was well into his, his late 80s, and then he died at age 99, into his 90s, he would go every week to a VA hospital, and he would meet with younger men, all of them were younger than him, some by lots of years and decades, and he would sit down with a support group for PTSD, uh, soldiers and Marines and others that had faced great things, some in the recent wars, and he helped walk them through some of the help that was needed in their life. And I thought, what a great man. What a great character. I think he died well. He didn't die in World War II when he thought he would over and over again, but he died years later, just a couple days ago, and he was a great man. I say that because we celebrate that kind of thing. We come to Genesis and we see a great man who so often in his life did great things, but in the end of his life, he makes some very poor decisions. And I'm thankful God can continue to use what happens. We, we read a little bit here. It says, Now it came to pass when Isaac was old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called his older son and said to him, My son, here, and he said, answered him, Here I am. Now, what is going on here is really the decline of Isaac. He's... Um, He's declining in his physical presence. He's dying. He's getting ready to pass from this earth. His eyes are dim. He's blind. And it really speaks not only of the physical condition of Isaac's life, but his spiritual condition. In the end of his life, he was not a spiritually vibrant man. Instead, he was someone in decline. And we read a little bit about what he wanted to do. And first of all, he calls his oldest son... Now, previous to this, you know that in, um, in his life, when his wife, Rebecca, went to have children, remember, twins were born. Esau was the first one out, and then uh, younger than that is Jacob, right? And God gave Isaac and Rebecca a prophecy that somehow the younger would be the one who would receive the blessing. Or in other words, the older would serve the younger. And that was totally out of place in that culture and even in legal standing in that day under the codes and laws of the land that the older would somehow have to serve the younger. And yet God told him that's what would happen. So to backdrop to this is this, that as Isaac is getting ready to die, he calls for his older son, whom he would have already known was not the son that he would, would, would receive the blessing. It was actually the younger son that would receive the blessing. And he wants really just to have a fine meal of venison. That's all he's concerned about. He's not really concerned about the younger son or the older son. Instead, he just is thinking about himself. And I would say that that's the first part of his demise was that he put himself ahead of the Lord. And it's possible that we do that. I I could tell you, if you're honest with yourself, you do do that. I do that. We sometimes put ourselves ahead of the Lord. But God wants us to really put him first and and keeping him in priority. And we're second, right? Um, 
there's a whole series of videos on, um, on YouTube. They've been around for years now called I Am Second. And if you ever go there, uh, look those up. And they're just testimonies of Christians. Some of them are well-known people, sometimes celebrities or, or sports figures or others. And they give a little testimony. And the, they always end with this, I am second. Because really that's the place for the believer. We're, we're second. He's first. But sometimes we make those bad decisions and in the haste of the moment or in the, the lust of the flesh, in this case his hunger, he just wanted some savory meat as the Bible says and he has his younger, uh, his older son, excuse me, who was the hunter, go out and look for venison. Well, we find out that that was not in keeping with even those that um, preceded him. For instance, what do you you always wonder what somebody's thinking about at the end of their life like Clarence Smoyer he was thinking about other soldiers and and other servicemen and people that had experienced great you know trauma during various wars and he was thinking that way and you kind of get an idea of what his heart was like a very humble man and um, you also find out here like if you look back in Abraham Remember Abraham, when he's getting ready to die, what's he concerned about? He's concerned about finding a bride for Isaac. He was looking out for his son. He wanted to know that. You find out uh, when King David comes to the end of his life, he's making arrangements for a temple to be built by Solomon, his son. You find out Paul, when you read in, in 2 Timothy, his last letter, and Paul is concerned that he's passing on uh, that same really ministry or the baton of ministry to a younger man named Timothy and he's encouraging this young pastor to stay in the fight and to finish his course and just before Paul is martyred and he knew his time was at hand and Paul is concerned about others and you see that over and over again we read of Moses Moses was not like Isaac in that even Moses when he was 120 years old he still was full of life says Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim nor his natural vigor diminished. Moses went out of here uh, on and up. I wish I could be like that. Some, you know, I'm, I say, Lord, if you give me energy and I live to be 120, whatever I live, probably won't make it to 120. But I'll say this, I want to serve you, Lord. And Moses was that kind of man. Isaac was not. Sadly, he was one that... Um, was thinking more of himself in those days. He disobeys God's command by following his own heart, his own selfish desires, and he disobeys what God told him about the covenant and whoever that would be. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You know that if you, you often hear this term, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your little inner voice, right? Follow you, the real you. And I will just tell you that that is not really biblical at all. Well, it's biblical in that if you do follow your heart, you're going to end up um, in the way of death if you're only following your heart. Now, if you're following the Lord and putting him and trusting him, the Bible says he'll give you the desires of your heart. You know why? Because when you're following him, you're in line with him and you're in his will. And the things that God wants for you, you will want. And he gives you those desires of your heart. But if you just follow your heart, that's bad advice because it will lead you astray. 
Proverbs 19.21, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. And I have to say it this way. Apart from us sometimes making terrible blunders and making plans that were not according to what God wanted, God's still going to have his plan made and still directed. We find that in the life of Isaac. Even though he set out to have Esau get him some meat and then he could bless Esau and hand him the birthright that was not his because God said it wouldn't be his. You know what? He, he sets out to do that. God was still going to work his plan out so that the right son got the blessing. We find that happens. And my friends, and this goes for all of us, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, if you're not following the Lord, you're not walking by the Spirit of God and being controlled by the Spirit of God, you can make very, and I can make very poor decisions. Sometimes we think we know what we're doing. I mean, there's all kinds of people today that think they know what they're doing. Some of them are trying to run the country. Some of them are trying to run a community. Some of them are trying to run their family. And they're maybe even sincere in what they're trying to do. But, but if they're not following after God, it's, it's futile. Paul, the apostle, writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He speaks of the wisdom of this age. And he says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. The wisdom of this age, hey, it's always going to be flashier. It's always going to have more long, you know, longer words, right? And it's going to be more couth or whatever you want to use, you know, for to the way it approaches things. It's all more cultured, all those kind of things. And it doesn't amount to a hill of beans if God hasn't given wisdom behind it. Paul says, listen up. This is not the wisdom of this age, but wisdom from above. He says, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Now the word mystery in the Bible doesn't mean something that no one else can understand. It's something that hadn't previously been revealed. That's what it means. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. (coughs) Which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. My friends, there's a wisdom that goes beyond this world. And you know what? If you'll follow the Lord, you'll trust him. He, he puts that in your heart. And it's his heart. See, we need a new heart. The old heart leads us to death. The new heart leads us to Christ and to heaven. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him. In other words, you can't know what it's like to be a human being unless you're a human being. I can't know what it's like to be a cat because I'm not a cat. All right? Now, there's people out there that claim they're cats, but they really aren't. You ask them, what does a cat think right now? And they couldn't tell you either. You know, all that kind of stuff. But, but the reality is that God knows your heart. And by the way, he knows what it's like to be a man. Because God, the Son, incarnated. He put flesh on. He became a man 
right through the virgin's womb and into the manger at Bethlehem. Jesus is born and he grows up in this world and he knows what it's like to be human. So he can give us the wisdom from God because he's God and he can relate it to us because we're human and he's human. Isn't that great? Only God could do that. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received, he says, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Then Paul says this, But... The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that great? You see, God has not left us alone to grope in darkness. He's given us the Spirit of God. And if you'll receive Jesus Christ by faith, you also get the Holy Spirit. And if you'll yield your mind to the Holy Spirit, He gives you the wisdom that you seek. And He puts things in the right order. And we have that. What a wonderful truth that is. And you can camp on that. Well, we find Isaac uh, declined here. I'm I'm not going to go to that point quite yet. He disobeyed God's command. He lived by his own feelings. And his feelings led him astray. He really was more concerned about venison and a quick meal that would taste really good than he was about really what he would pass on to his sons. He was, a, as Warren Wiersbe puts it, a declining believer living by the natural instead of the supernatural and trusting his own senses instead of believing and obeying the word of God. He was blind and bedfast and claimed to be dying, but he still had a good appetite. And uh, with a father like that leading the home, it is a wonder that the family, it is any wonder that the family fell apart. And that's what would happen. There would be division in the next generation. There would be problems in the home. And yet God would work his work. The second part of this, we see Isaac's decline, but we see Rebecca's deception. She uh, is listening in the other room as this conversation is going on. And remember, If you read through the scriptures, she favored Jacob. Jacob was a softer man. He was he was not an outdoorsman kind of guy. Uh, He was softer skinned. He was someone who was more acquainted with the domestic life. And and by the way, that's not a bad thing. All right, some men are not those kind of outdoorsy kind of men. They don't do it. It Doesn't mean anything's wrong with them. Just means that's the way they are. But then you take Esau, and he, Esau, he was a man of the fields. He lived outside. He was a hairy man, right? You kind of picture him as someone who just would go out there rough and tumble. You grabbed his hands. He probably had calluses on his hands, right? And he smelled like the outdoors, all right? Hopefully good. But uh, you, you, you see the contrast between the two sons. And for Isaac, he really was favoring Esau. But for Rebekah... She favored Jacob. And it's interesting that it would be God who would actually favor Jacob and would want Jacob to have the father's blessing. 
And it would be through the descendants of Jacob that Messiah would come. Jesus born in Jacob's family. Genesis 27 verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau his son. She's eavesdropping. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. So here's Rebekah. She's scheming. She's starting to say, Okay, I, uh, I got a plan here. And I would just say it this way, that, you know, God is going to use her scheming, although I don't think her motives were right either. And it's amazing how God can take even the times where we sin or disobey or think we can somehow make his plan and without us it doesn't happen. Um, And God still works those things out, right? Because he does. He goes on to say, or the Bible goes on to say, Go now to the flock and bring from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves. Right? Jacob's, uh, or, or Isaac's wife knows best. I know how to make a good meal. She says, go get a goat. He's not going to know the difference. Right? Just a savory piece of meat is all he really wanted. And uh, she does that. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. And may I say it this way, her scheming was this, that she wanted to have the favored son, her favorite son have the blessing. And yet both she and her husband had forgotten that God already said it would happen. God was going to do that. And what we find out here is that she schemes and she puts her her younger son uh, or uh, Jacob uh, in a well in a position where he's going to deceive his father into tricking his father who can't see remember he's blind into believing that he's Esau quite a scheme and by the way it's it's easy to scheme isn't it and this scene as it's testified really if you want a spiritual commentary on it you'll find it in the book of James in chapter 3 verse 13 and here's a sort of an understanding of the wisdom of God again it says who is wise and understanding among you let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts do not boast and lie against the truth This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Wow. Where did this wisdom that Isaac had and Rebekah had, where it come from really? It wasn't the wisdom of God. It was really from their own hearts. And even from there, as lost sinners, sometimes they weren't necessarily lost. They knew because they're, you know, Isaac is, is labeled there in the household of faith. But... He was really not obeying what God had for him. Verse 16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
and a lot more could be said about that but just the fact that listen when god makes a decree and it comes from him and people yield to him uh, what a difference it makes it brings peace the decision that ultimately would be used even though it was a bad decision god would use it but it would also bring uh, anything but peace in a home it would bring conflict between two brothers that was a very deep conflict that goes on to this very day Jacob's concern wasn't, <clears throat> is it right, really, <clears throat> but is it safe kind of thing. And sometimes that's our uh, thinking as well. I wondered here in Genesis chapter 27, we'll read these last verses here. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him. And I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. That's a legitimate concern. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. And he went and he got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins on the kids of the goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. And then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. Well, you see quite a deception going on. She takes the skins of the animal, puts it on the backs of his hands, because uh, he didn't have a hairy hands and his neck was smooth and put hair on the back of his neck and everything else so that in case Jacob grabbed a hold of his son Esau that's what he thinks it is who is and feels that he's going to feel hair all right and you know that's exactly how it goes all right Esau was out in the field looking for meat and instead a couple goats were killed brought in and the meat served to Isaac and he believes that it's Esau doing the thing. Even though he hears the voice of Jacob. But he's not sure. you know. And he yields in a time of weakness. To really giving over a blessing. Totally out of order of the legal parameters of that day. And of the cultural parameters of that day. He gives the blessing to the, to the son. That God said he would give a blessing to. And it's interesting how that all goes. Well I would just say this that beware don't be deceptive okay that's really what this chapter teaches because god wants us to do things right he wants them to be done in his way and it's easy to end up deceiving in the corinthian church paul writes to a young church that in many ways was being caught up with deception and they were doing that and and i can say that's always the case with people there's always somebody out there trying to deceive and there's always people that will get deceived. And if you're deceived, you don't know you've been deceived. All right? And I think it's important that we make provision for the Spirit of God and not the flesh in that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And I want to end this sermon, and I say end, you guys all know that isn't the end, but it's close, all right. The end is this, that, listen, no matter how bad it gets, 
how dysfunctional a family can be, how messed up a life can be, what the world throws at you in a war or something like that. Whatever happens, God is still in control. And, you know, Christ will never let you down. One thing you'll find out is that in the family of Christ, which, by the way, I'm part of that family too because we're in the family of sin, and he goes right back to Adam. Listen, we have lots of lying and deception and heartache and you name it, every commandment that has been broken in our families. And God still is working out his plan so that you can be reconciled to him and you, your sin can be forgiven and my sin can be forgiven and we can be with him forever. Jesus will never let you down. Jacob will, Isaac will, even Abraham will, Jack, Karen will, whoever else. And, but Christ will not. Psalm 32, verse 2, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Can I tell you, there's only been one that's ever walked this earth who has not had sin in his mortal body, and it's Jesus Christ. And there was never any deceit in his mouth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, we need someone who is the embodiment of truth, not deception, not scheming, not trying to work out our own plans, not just following our feelings or our heart. We need someone who is the embodiment of truth, who is the truth, and that's Jesus. He's the only one. And I'm thankful, as I said earlier, that we have someone who didn't just leave us to try to figure this out, but actually became one of us. The book of Hebrews talks about that. It talks about Jesus as our high priest. See, a priest is one who intercedes on our behalf before God. That's the the strict definition. And the only priest that can really do that is Jesus. See, all the other priests that ever have lived, they they have problems. For one thing, they, they had lifespan. Even going back into the Old Testament and the Levitical priesthood and all that, you had a high priest. High priest would only go so far and then his life would be ended because of age or whatever else befell him. And, and he could no longer intercede for his people. And see, we don't need that kind of a priest which is weak at best. We need someone who can come and could intercede for us forever and will never die. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 20, Inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more Jesus became a surety of a better covenant. You know there's a better covenant? A better covenant than the covenant that was handed on through Abraham to his followers and descendants. A covenant that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. That's what the writer here says. It just, that's, a, that's a given fact. They could not be a priest forever. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And my friends, you can underline uttermost. I don't care where, where you've been or what sin is in your life or has been in your family or it, wherever it's touched you, he can save to the uttermost. Oh man, that's great. 
For such a high priest was fitting for us. Literally, he was fit for us. Who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered himself. Amen. Amen. You know, you can learn a lot by people's last words, can't you? And we see some last words found in this section as well. It's interesting, people's last words. P.T. Barnum, the famous um, circus owner, right? And who was famous for his sideshows and he got all kinds of... His last words on the day of his death was, what were today's receipts? Hmm. You want that to be your last words? More concerned about money than where you're going? How about Napoleon? When he was dying, he cried out, Army, army, head of the army. He was still thinking battles on this earth. Henry David Thoreau, his last two words were, Moose, Indian. Moose, Indian. Wow, I don't know what he was thinking there, but probably, uh, you know, something going on there. But here's a man that has experienced God's creation in such a way His last words were more concerned about the creation, perhaps. And we could go on and on about those things. How about about Todd Beamer on United 93 on 9-11-2001? Let's roll. You know, you know a lot about a character of someone in that. And you do that. What about Jesus? His last words were, it is finished. And then he gave up his spirit. It is finished. What is finished? The sacrifice for sin. The payment for sin. He who is holy, harmless, undefiled, the one who lives forever and ever, and he ever intercedes for us, is the same one who finished the work for us that we might be saved to the uttermost. Praise God for that. God will work out his plan, and in that plan is the Savior. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? Are you following him? Or are you following your own heart? Father, thank you for the word of God. And we are grateful for our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to give of ourselves to him in ways, O Lord, that would exalt him. And help us, O God, to be in a world where we follow you first and foremost. And not just the devices of man and and women. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and for his salvation. And we pray in his name. Amen.